This is episode 238 of the Books, Shows, Tunes, and Mad Acts podcast. This episode is titled, Trina Robbins, Cartoonist, Fashion Designer, and Author. Welcome to Books, Shows, Tunes, and Mad Acts, the show about stuff we like. I'm your host, Jennifer Crittenden, and sometimes I'm lucky enough to be joined by my co-host, Bill Aho, who has an ear for good music and an eye for the extraordinary. Books, Shows, Tunes, and Mad Acts is brought to you by Discreet Guide, the training company for improving your speaking and writing skills. We hope you enjoy the show. I am so pleased to welcome a new guest to the show today. Trina Robbins is with us, and she is an American cartoonist. Welcome to the show, Trina. Thank you. I'm going to introduce you. Uh, Trina was an early participant and one of the first few female artists in the underground comics movement, although that relationship has some complexity, which we might talk about today. In the 1980s, she was also the first woman to draw the Wonder Woman comics. She's a member of the Will Eisner Hall of Fame. And of particular interest to me was she wrote a memoir entitled Last Girl Standing. I love that uh, title. And that was released in 2017 by Fan to Graphics. It's also available on Amazon uh, through a different subscription service. And I recommend doing that. It actually works really well. You can just get a Kindle version of it and well worth uh, the money. Uh, let's see. She's also published a number of books about women in comics. And I hope we get to talk about that a little bit today, too. In the 1960s, she ran an East Village clothing boutique called Broccoli and made clothes for Mama Cass, Donovan, David Crosby, and others. She was intimately involved in the 1960s rock scene, where she was friends with people like Jim Morrison and the Birds. Uh, she is the first of the three ladies of the canyon in Joni Mitchell's classic song, uh, from her album with the same name. And I just want to read that uh, first lyric. Trina wears her wampum beads. She fills her drawing book with line, sewing lace on widow's weeds and filigree on leaf and vine. Vine and leaf are filigree and her coats a secondhand one trimmed with antique luxury. She is a lady of the canyon. I really like that summary of you. I think it captures really some some kind of you know, key moments. It is very well done, actually. So yeah, again, welcome to the show, Tarina. It's so looking forward to our conversation today. Great. I have my tea with me, so I'm ready to go. All right. We got fuel and we got questions. All right, Bill, you want to start us off here? Okay, Trina, you, you've been such a trailblazer for women and for art. Comics gain so much from your vision. Can you give us a, like a short history or recap of those early days? Well, as you have already mentioned, Jennifer, I had a boutique in the Lower East Side. I made clothes, not just for rock stars, but for perfectly ordinary young men and women who would wander off the streets, either because they liked my bizarre windows or because it was raining out and they needed shelter. I made a lot of friends who came in just because it was raining out. And they stayed friends. I'm still, you know, kind of 
at least in touch with some of them. And I was drawing comics. I was drawing comics for the East Village Other, which was an underground newspaper. Um, for those that don't know what underground newspapers are, the the closest we have now is every big city and every college town has at least one free newspaper that talks about just what's going on in town and maybe a little bit of politics and a lot of ads. Uh, the underground newspapers were more anarchistic than that and more political than that. Some of them, they were counterculture. So I was drawing comics for the East Village Other, which advertised my boutique, Broccoli. And later they were just comics. They started as ads and they became just comics. And the ads themselves were so kind of psychedelic and designy that most people didn't even realize they were ads. <laughs> so uh, that was okay. And there was a very small community of underground cartoonists at the very beginning. I mean, you could count us on the fingers of one hand. And uh, they were all guys. By 1969, there was one other woman. That was Willie Mendez. But before that, they were all guys and me. And in the beginning, that didn't bother me and I didn't see any difference. But really, their comics started changing, I think, starting in maybe late 68 or or maybe 1969. The comics they had, mostly we've been doing comics that centered around our culture, which was the counterculture. And some of them were just very abstract and pretty to look at. But um, around, I would say, 69, their comics started becoming, you know, more and more this misogyny started crawling into their comics. Um, number one, because there was no comics code in underground comics, so you could draw whatever you wanted. And it seemed that in these guys' heads, a lot of that was misogyny. And um, number two, there was there were influences. I mean, I hate to bring up, I constantly have to bring up Crumb when I talk about this, but Robert Crumb was drawing extremely, extremely misogynist comics comics in which women were humiliated and raped and murdered and tortured and really horrible stuff, beheaded. And he was, of course, such a good artist. He really was. I mean, he's a great artist that the guys were, oh, okay, if Crumb does it, then we should do that too. And that's what they did. Um, so I disagreed with them, of course, and said, you know, rape and murder isn't funny. And they said, you have no sense of humor. And that kind of started the rift. I was thinking about that yesterday. And this is a little bit off topic, but I'll throw it in there. You know, I think sometimes when we are attempting to be cutting edge or flamboyant in some way, or even shock people, that sometimes we get a little misled. And I was thinking about that with the Silicon Valley bros and that culture that has developed, which, you know, I'm very sympathetic to tech guys because well, I'm surrounded by them. But I think sometimes when we're attempting to do something that will make us stand out, we sometimes make mistakes and that the way in which we choose to stand out might be a little bit childish or simplistic or, you know, attempting to go for a sort of obvious shock effect when 
maybe if we thought about it a little bit more carefully, we would be cutting edge in a different way. I don't know if you have any reactions to that, but I was thinking... Jennifer, you're being extremely kind when you say this. You know, I have heard, Lily, several months ago at the age of 101, was drawing comics in the during the war, during World War II. And in the beginning, she was the only woman in this bullpen full of male cartoonists. And she says that there were constant sexual references going around the room. And she was a refugee. She was from Austria. And she says they would try to teach her dirty words in English. Um, And she says that very often she would cry herself to sleep when she got home uh, because it was was so awful, the situation. And the thing is, okay, that was in the 40s. But a couple of years ago, I was having lunch with a woman who works in animation. And she said that she was the only woman in the room with a bunch of guys working in animation and that she was so sick of the sexual innuendos that went around the room and the the, the misogyny uh, that she just couldn't stand it. So it's like it has not stopped, you know, and, you know, fuck this boys will be boys bullshit, you know, they have to grow up and they have to learn to be decent people. And I'm not saying this about all men. Obviously, I mean, I have a male partner and lots and lots and lots of male friends, you know. Yeah, sometimes that grouping, people are trying to be like everybody else in, in that room that that's, they don't even necessarily like, but somebody who is maybe more boisterous or things like they they just tend to take over sometimes and people just try to be like that person. And it's always pretty annoying. <laughs> <laughs> Extremely. All right. So you've written so many books about uh, female comics. And so I wanted to ask you what inspires you to keep writing and talking about female cartoonists. Well, these are all women, all the women I write about, except for, you know, my general books in which I talk about all the women in comics going up to contemporary days. But, you know, contemporary days can deal with itself. I mean, there are so many women now. I don't need to bring them up. You know, there are more women. I don't know all the women who are drawing comics now. There are more than you can count. But the early women are the ones I write about. The early, late, late 19th century and early 20th century women, starting in 1896, Mm. which is the first, at this point, it is is agreed that this one comic by Rose O'Neill from 1896 is the very first comic by an American woman. Now, you know, eventually they may find something earlier, but so far this is what we have found. And I found it. I found it. So the early women, you know, who until I wrote these books, people were saying, oh, women didn't draw comics, you know? But of course they did. It's just that the men didn't write about them. And, you know, my big... What I have taken out of all of my research is if you are not written about, you are forgotten. And they haven't written about the women. So the women were forgotten and everyone could say there weren't any. But now they can't say that anymore because I've written about them. And the thing is, they were good. It isn't like I had to search and find some woman who once drew a comic. You know, Uh these women were so 
They were just immensely successful and very famous and really great. So let's do talk about feminism. We got started down that path. We may as well keep going. So I watched the documentary, They're Beautiful When They're Angry, um, which I thought did a really great job in showing what was happening across the country during the women's movement in the late 60s, early 70s. Second wave feminism. Yeah, second wave feminism. Exactly. It was really the first time that I'd seen the juxtaposition of what was happening on the East Coast, what was happening in Chicago, and what was happening in California. So that that was quite good. I recommend that show also to people, which is available. I think maybe I saw it on Netflix, but it's available for free. And you're featured in that show as the cartoonist for the underground newspaper, It Ain't Me, Babe. And so I was curious for you to put yourself back in time and tell us kind of what you were thinking at that time. Like, are these women crazy? You know, because it's so different than what came before or like more like, Finally, you know, someone is speaking up. Well, it was more the finally rather than the, ain't these women crazy? Because they weren't crazy and I wasn't crazy. You know, I never, never thought that. Finally, well, I was already a, a feminist. I had already become a feminist, really. I think in 1969 was when I started becoming a feminist. Um, and this was 1970. But it was just so great to see that they had a newspaper. Uh-huh. You know, they had, and I didn't know it at the time, but it was the first feminist newspaper in the country. Yeah. I had, I did think it was the first on the West Coast, you mm-hmm. know, but I had no idea it was the first in the whole country. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was very exciting. And this was a place for me to draw because I was in San Francisco at that point, And the guys were not inviting me into their books. The way they used to do their comics is they would call each other up and say, hey, I'm doing a comic. You want to contribute four pages or six pages, whatever, you know, but nobody called me and asked me to contribute except the newspapers, the the underground newspapers. Uh They as soon as I came to town, basically, just within a week of me being in San Francisco, I was getting calls from the underground newspapers asking me to contribute. So it wasn't the newspapers and it wasn't the comics publishers because they were publishing me. It was the guys who didn't want to include me in their club. So here was a place for me to, you know, to do comics and feminist comics. So I phoned them and um, told them I wanted to draw for them. And there was a BN in Golden Gate Park uh, later that week, I guess over the weekend. So I met them there, Golden Gate Park. I was wearing a shirt I had designed uh, with a superheroine with her fist raised, and it said Super Sister, and they loved the T-shirt, and they said, yes, 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 come draw for us. So I I joined the staff, which wasn't, it, it was a very informal staff. I don't even know if people were listed as staff. It was just people who came and put the book together and wrote for it. I was doing comics for the back page. And also front covers and sometimes interior drawings. And of course, it was working with them. Like I wasn't alone anymore. Yeah. You know, I had this backup team, you know, it was working with them that gave me the courage to do an entire woman's comic. 
which is the first all-woman comic ever in the whole world. Yeah, that that sentiment really, really resounds throughout that whole movie about women that had felt as though they were alone until that second wave women's movement came through and people started getting together and talking and realizing that they had so much shared experience. It's really quite moving in the they're beautiful when they're angry that you um, see that happen to those women, that feeling of solidarity and I'm not crazy. And finally, (laughs) I never thought I was crazy. So I also read Last Girl Standing. I love that title of your, your memoir. And one thing that I thought was quite interesting uh, when you were talking about that time period is that there wasn't a lot of appreciation for what the for the first wave for the suffragettes. And, you know, I was thinking it's as though we're not very good about learning our own history and about mm-hmm. work that has come before us. It always makes me wonder like, are we destined to repeat these lessons? Are we destined to reinvent the wheel? Because it seems as though we're not always very good about learning our own history. And I was curious, you know, of course, at your age now, you've seen the cycles come and go, right? And I was wondering how you're feeling about feminism these days. Well, you know, the thing is, this we never really get there because there's always people working against it, you know? So it's these because sometimes they, there are more of them. Sometimes there are more of us. Mm-hmm. And we, you know, second wave feminism, God bless them. You know, and they got the right to vote in 1920. But then they thought, wow, okay, we're equal. We can vote, you know, and none of the other stuff. They weren't thinking about the fact that, you know, they weren't getting paid as much as men. They weren't getting hired for certain things. Only men could do them. I mean, you would pick up the newspaper the help wanted section, and you'd see help wanted men, help wanted women, you know, they didn't get hired for the same jobs. You could be a stewardess, but you couldn't be a pilot. You could be a secretary, but you couldn't be a CEO. You could be a nurse, but you couldn't be a doctor, you know, and they weren't thinking that yet. They were just thinking, oh boy, we're equal, we can vote, but there's so much more so much more. And let's not even talk about housework. So, you know, they they did get us the vote. God bless them. You know, and of course, I mean, when you think of how times changed, Mm -hmm. you know, and they were there, that was a revolution. They were there for the revolution. But then they just left it at that. And then we came along and we fought for the rest. And we're still fighting. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, we got the right for abortion and now they're taking that away from us. You know, we have to keep fighting. Yeah, there was a quote in that They're Beautiful When They're Angry movie that just made me crack up. Uh, It was one of the women was uh, pointing out that one of the law professors, maybe at Harvard, I can't remember where he was, some, you know, very uh, prestigious law school, would say in his classroom, women can't be lawyers uh, they wouldn't, you know, they 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 would not be good lawyers. I can't remember what his objection was. They don't think logically or something like that. And it just really made me laugh because now we see with the statistics of people going into law school and then out and clearly women are very good yes, <laughs> at being lawyers. <laughs> yeah. So really, everything men said in the past is wrong. Everything, <laughs> you know? 
you guys are in what, Southern Cal? It's freezing here. San Diego is the land of perfect weather. Probably lovely there right now. Yeah, it is. It is warmer. I've heard that Northern California is getting some pretty cold temperatures. Oh, it's awful. Yeah. I mean, the, <laughs> the sun is out, the sky is blue, but uh, it's as soon as, you know, the sun goes away, it's so bloody cold. And right now it's still, of course, is cold because it's morning and the sun hasn't shone long enough. It's chilly. Another one that so amused me in your memoir was the cartoon. Well, you talk about your sister quite a bit, which was r- really lovely to to read about her. I worshipped her. Yeah, she. Yeah, I I know that family dynamic uh, well. Yeah, very touching. And so, I had to laugh at the cartoon in which you wrote about your sister's influence on you and and the things that she said. Right, that women don't really need to have the vote because they're just going to vote for the handsome, you know, for handsome guys. And that, um, you know, it's really fine for a woman to just have a white, a life of taking care of a man. And then denying that she said those things long after the fact. There's something, yeah, just so, there's something just so much about human nature and all of that. And so, you know, we have such a selective memory. And so I was, I was curious what you thought, if you were thinking at all about selective memory and how things change when you wrote your memoir. Um, no, I wasn't. <laughs> I simply wrote my memories. I don't know if they were selective or not. I'm sure they were because we do have selective memory. Mm-hmm. My sister, by the way, of course, became a feminist. Right. Of course. <laughs> of course. Yeah. Yeah. Appropriately. So. so I've been to a few of the Comic-Con panels where you and your friends have talked about the old days of comics. And there were such fascinating panels. Uh, the first one that I went to with with Dennis Kitchen and some of the other, it was a pretty big, big panel. And this last one with was you and Willie and one other woman, I can't remember her name, but it was just a fascinating panel. I mean, the history and, and laughter. Do you enjoy doing the panels? I love those panels, of course. Of course, I think the last one you're talking about was when it was the 50th anniversary of women's comics. Oh, yes, yes, yes. And, and you guys were so fun. Thank you. Thank you. It's just fun to get together with these women and talk about our memories. You know, I'm old enough to remember getting my underground comics from the head shops and sometimes record store head shops type thing. And even going to comic shops and, you know, asking to see the box behind the counter because, <laughs> because they couldn't put them out. But but these days, I mean, I don't know where you can where you can find underground comics or how how they're being distributed. There are no more underground comics. That's something that happened in the 60s and 70s. And, you know, some of them, I mean, you know, women's comics survived till 1992, but it was on its last legs. There aren't any underground. I mean, there's no counterculture or the counterculture is different. Or maybe we're all the the counterculture has become all of us. Well, in certain states anyway, I mean, I think that California is simply you know, it's a counterculture state, you know. I realize there are exceptions, but you know what I mean. You guys are Californians. <laughs> yeah, we are. To me, it was really great at the time you got to work with DC. Now, I don't know if that was a good experience or a bad experience, but doing the, the Wonder Woman comic, you and um, Kurt Busick. I was just looking at one of them here the other day because I do have a few of those. And 
I was just really taken back by the style and the way it's all. I mean, it's just so great. I mean, it really does give you a different feel for the era of the Wonder Woman. I was doing that, you know, as an homage to Harry Peter, of course, who I just I have I have an, a Wonder Woman original by him right here wow. on my wall. Oh, and nice. as I talk to you, I'm looking at it. You know, I mean, he was the creator. You know, everyone talks about William Moulton Marston, who, of course, you know, he created her. He wrote about her. But Harry Peter was the visual creator. Yeah. That's very important because every Wonder Woman ever since that has been based on Harry Peter's creation, his costume. Even when they put her in pants, they still based it on Harry Peter's original costume. You know, she has always been some variation on Harry Peter's original Wonder Woman. I hope that was, it was a good experience working with DC, although I've heard different stories with different people about working for the mainstream media. But No, they treated me decently, but they really haven't given me any other work, you know. Um, and I haven't done that much mainstream comics work anyway, but it's been with Marvel. Mm. Yeah. It's not like I didn't want to do anything for DC. Well, for a while there, I think it was just around the time that the Wonder Woman movie came out. They were doing Wonder Woman anthologies that included a lot of different artists and writers. And I did write for those, which was wonderful. But now they're gone and uh, they're not interested in me, which is too bad. I love to. Oh, my God, would I love to write Wonder Woman. Just a simple for Part series would be just divine. She's really a phenomenon, Wonder Woman. She's really a remarkable um, character, and her whole history is really fascinating. She's an icon. She's she's a feminist icon. Uh huh. And she's so popular. I mean, that's what amazed me because I sort of thought when the movie came out that it would be like a lot of things like that. That it's more fringe or, you know, more niche. But she was wildly popular. People love her. Everyone knows Wonder Woman. She's like Superman. Yeah. Everyone knows Superman. Even if you don't read the comics, Mm -hmm. you you still know Wonder Woman. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you'll dress up for her as her for Halloween or something. Or, you, you know, you can get Wonder Woman stuff, you know, Wonder Woman cards, Wonder Woman stationery, just Wonder Woman things i mean okay i'm going to give you a perfect example and these women who buy this wonder woman stuff they don't even necessarily read the comics no but they know her they know her and that's what an icon is Mm -hmm. you know just like i said like superman and batman but none of the other characters are really as iconic as -hmm. this um okay i had cancer breast cancer and i was getting chemo I don't have cancer anymore. I didn't have to lose a breast. It all worked out really wonderfully, except that once you've had it, you're always afraid you're going to get it again. But I was getting chemo. I I went to my appointment this one time to the, you know, the, the, the office where, you know, you sit and then they call you in and work on you. And there was a woman, I walked in, there was a woman dressed in a Wonder Woman costume. Oh. And I said, wow, you look great. Why are you wearing a Wonder Woman costume? And she said, this is my last chemo session. Oh. Oh. Celebrate. Oh, oh, you know? Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. 
That's sweet. You talk in your memoir about having breast cancer and, you know, you're not modeling at all about it, but you do talk about losing your hair, which really yeah. touched me because your hair is, you know, was such a trademark for you. It was and, a trademark. Uh-huh. But it came back people... white and now that's the trademark, you know. Yeah. Uh-huh. That's okay. I love my hair. I love my white hair. Uh-huh. Yeah, it was just really fun when people drew you, which of course they did. Yes. So many of your friends yes. are with artists, the long blonde right? hair. Yeah, right. That was such a that was how you recognized that it was Trina was because of her hair. But I'm glad to hear that you're well now. And yeah, fingers crossed that it never comes. Always back fingers again. crossed. Always. Well, you, uh, we have touched on this topic. I wanted to pursue it a little bit further. You've gone back and forth between New York and California, it seems like, your whole life. So I was curious what observations you had about living in the two different places. Well, California is much easier to, to live in. Mm. Although now, of course, San Francisco is so expensive, but yeah. I, I own my home. I bought it in 1975, which really is... If someone were to say, what is the smartest thing you ever did? <laughs> I would say buying my house in yeah. San Francisco. You know, it's it's like owning a diamond mine, really. Mm. And, you know, I couldn't sell it because that sh- would just have to buy another diamond mine. You know? <laughs> It'd be um, a lot more now. <laughs> um, it would be much more, exactly. Although we'd sell the house for a lot more. But um, in those days, it was so easy, you know, when I was... Before I bought my house, I was renting. Rents were so low. Of yeah. course, in New York at that time, rents were also low. Uh-huh. But, but um, they had winter, you know, and I'm complaining about the weather, but it's a high of 60. A high, of course, just means that for five minutes, somewhere in the <laughs> sunshine, it was 60. But, you know, I mean, they had snow. They still have snow. I don't think it snows very much in New York now, but it used to a lot. Mm-hmm. They have weather. We don't have weather here, not really. Mm-hmm. Um, although we're very spoiled and we start bitching if it if it hits, you know, 60. It's just easier to live here. I mean, it simply is. Although I love visiting Every time I visit New York, I love it. It's so exciting. Yeah, it's There's so exciting. much going on there. Yeah. My God, I love it. And the museums are, you know, our museums are so dinky compared to this. The Met, God, and the Museum of Modern Art. But um, then I'm always happy to get back. I mean, I, I have a backyard. It's, you know, uh-huh. I, I didn't have a backyard in New York. You lived in you lived in apartment buildings. I have a backyard, you know, and it's it's and I had one in Los Angeles too. You know, it's it's so great to have backyards. Yeah, it's it's. I, I'm from the Midwest, and I I know what is the difference being in the big city to a smaller Midwest area. It's really different. Moving from New York to San Francisco, it was almost like moving to the country. Yeah. People wouldn't think that living in San Francisco, you wouldn't think it's like living in the country, though. But when you Only have if the you compa- have lived in New York. Right. It's like the comparison. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And it is funny about the weather. It reminds me of that quote from somebody about the coldest wind I ever the coldest I've ever Summer been was the winter. Right? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah, it's a it's a yeah, that cold that gets in your yeah, bones. It is a problem. We don't have summer. We have yeah. spring and fall, but we don't have summer. Yeah, they're really hot. I was thinking too about having a storefront 
your storefront was in East Village, and you were talking about so many people stopping in. But did you also have a designer shop in Los Angeles for a while? No, I okay. did, did made things at home. Aha, uh-huh. gotcha. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've wondered if it would be as easy to have that shop. Um, in, in LA, probably not. Yeah. Not at mm-hmm. the time. Mm-hmm. But in New York, my God, the storefront was $45 a month. Isn't that amazing? So I, just, I just moved right in and I put up a partition. Well, my then boyfriend put up a partition. So I was actually sleeping in the back, mm-hmm. you know, and I had a little tiny little stove and tiny little refrigerator. And he had fixed up a shower that was over the toilet. I describe it in, in my book, mm-hmm. you know, it was really, and it worked. It really worked. Amazing. And, you know, but then eventually an apartment upstairs became available. So I moved upstairs to, mm-hmm. to live and I would just go downstairs and open my shop. And it was like, at the time, it was like, I, that was my building. This is my home, this whole building, you know? Yeah, and you welcomed so many people there, right? It was I kind did. of like, yeah, it was kind of your it spot, was, right? It was the house by the side of the road. In that poem, people look that poem up. I don't have the poem memorized, but it starts with, I want to live in a house by the side of the road. Then it talks about how people will come by. Mm-hmm. They'll drop by on their voyages. Yeah. It's not the house, it's the people inside the house is really that makes a difference. Of course. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it does seem as though everywhere you've gone, you've kind of built various communities. Uh, so, what about now? Are you still doing? Are you designing any clothes? Or are you still interested in clothes? Or what, right what? now, of course, I'm interested. Are you kidding? I love <laughs> clothes. God, I love clothes. I haven't sewn anything for. I guess the last time I sewed was before the, you know, sewed a, made an entire garment was before the lockdown. Mm. Um, but I have been, I collect vintage mm-hmm. and I have a little pile, uh, in the front room of things that I'm working on that have to be fixed vintage things that have to be made, made wearable. I just took up two, two hems of dresses mm-hmm. that were too long. And, um, next thing I'm going to work on is this wonderful 1940s house dress. God, it's so beautiful, but it's zips up the front and the zipper is broken. Uh-huh. So I have to install a new zipper. And uh-huh. I hate putting zippers in. It's <laughs> I've never really gotten it down. It's always a problem. So that's the next thing that's waiting. After that, um, there are two, two skirts. Let's see, I took up the hems on those two dresses. Two skirts that need, they were dresses. They were sundresses from the 50s. And the tops were just completely destroyed, uh, mangled and wrecked. So I took the tops off and I'm turning them into skirts. Mm-hmm. That After I put the zipper in that one dress, next thing is those those two skirts to put in the, the uh, waistbands and buttons. That's the other thing I hate is buttonholes. Oh, God. But I have to <laughs> what, what era clothes do you like that, that I, are you attracted to? Well, I love the 40s and the 50s, too. Um, not not the extreme 50s where skirts were, you know, super, super full and you had to wear <laughs> petticoats under them, you know. But but more like the early 50s or, or even the late 50s and even the early 60s when it wasn't quite psychedelic yet. 
just the simple, you know, they call it fit and flare in the fashion world, mm-hmm. you know, fits at the waistline and then a skirt that goes out and is comfortable and, you know, a little below knee length. Mm-hmm. You can do anything with those dresses. I love them. You know, it's so interesting as you think about, or as I'm thinking about that era, sometimes I have an appreciation for what people wore then because you can see what women wore when they got married. And like my mother wore one of those, not quite flare, but, you know, a fitted dress. And there might even be a photograph of your, in your memoir of someone in their wedding dress, not the crazy white I don't yeah, know, the, block the sun kind of things that people wear now, but they often would wear very classy, you know, kind of um, elegant dresses. Well, I belong to a Facebook group called, what is something about, I forget the exact title, but it, the last two words of the title are vintage fashion. Mm-hmm. And uh, we show every kind of vintage. I mean, from from, you know, a thousand, two thousand BC, you know, to those incredible dresses of the 16th through the 17th uh, century, the 18th century, even, you know, the bustles and the, the hoop skirts. And then, of course, the vintage stuff, uh, 20th century vintage, you know, the wonderful flapper dresses, things like that. The 40s, I love the 40s. Everything, and even, you know, the 90s, which I don't think of the 90s as vintage. I mean, as far as I'm concerned, the 90s was yesterday. <laughs> I don't, I'm the same. <laughs> of course, it's very hard to get stuff. For, I mean, the 40s, if you can find anything from the 40s now, it costs a fortune. Oh. You know, it's very incredibly rare to find something in a thrift shop. And all of my vintage I found in thrift shops. I never go to vintage stores because they're too expensive. But you yeah, just can't. Uh, the last vintage thing I found was a beautiful um, Hawaiian dress from probably the 60s. That's the best I can do now. Well, I go to a lot of the vintage, or not vintage stores, but like the different thrift stores and stuff. I mean, we enjoy doing that kind of thing also. Um, and I always look for odd items and just things that just spark creativity because there's so much imagination that you, you can still find in those kind of things and yes. um, and clothes people are looking harder but i i still see a lot of pretty pretty cool fashion stuff i pick up some shirts now and then that have the um the the vintage look to them um sometimes they're really old and sometimes they're not but it's just kind of it's a fun way to go for people and i think more and more people are doing it now maybe because they have to yes they are and there's a lot of contemporary you know, retro stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, there are companies that make things that look like they're from the 50s. Mm-hmm. Rockabilly is what yeah, it's called. Yeah. Um, and I'll, sure, I'll go for those too. You know, I love them. Yeah. The two-tone striped shirts and things like that. Yeah. I collect Hawaiian shirts when I find them from my partner. I keep him in Hawaiian shirts. <laughs> and are you still collecting hats? Yes. Yes. <laughs> when I find them. You know, and they're nice. Yeah, I, I don't, I should wear them more often. But the trouble is when you wear a hat, if you have hair like mine, you have to keep the hat on because if you take it off, you've got hat hair. I know, you know? hat hair is the worst. <laughs> so I only wear hats when it's, when it's something, you know, something where, where you look 
really good if you're hatted and you keep it on, mm-hmm. you know, events, things like that. Mm-hmm. Has to yeah. coordinate well with your outfit. Oh, definitely. Yeah. You're stuck in your hat once you mm-hmm. put it on. <laughs> All right. So, yeah, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. And I didn't add this question to my list, but I was curious, like, so, um, well, I guess I'll ask two questions. Uh, so one is, what are you working on now, if anything? And then the second one is, and you can do these in either order that you want. I always like to ask this question. If you had a magic wand, what would you change today? <laughs> I'm glad she asked me that question. <laughs> I would just, I would make all of the right wing people on the planet, not just in America, disappear or maybe go somewhere else, <laughs> maybe ascend. Maybe I would have them all ascend ah. to their own place. Um, that would take care of a lot. Um, the other is, say, what was the second, the first one? What, what are you working on today? Oh, what am I working on now? I'm producing a a pro-choice anthology benefit anthology uh the money will go to Planned Parenthood Mm. and um magnificent work is coming in from all these cartoonists just wonderful wonder it's going to be a gorgeous book um the deadline for um for art is the end of this month and that's once I then I put everything together and I put up a crowdfunder uh-huh. You know, to get money to print it, we have a publisher. The publisher's Last Gasp, who published the first all woman book, uh-huh. and who published women's comics, the first all woman continuing anthology, and also published Strip AIDS USA, which I did in 1988, which was to benefit AIDS. I did that with two other um, cartoonists, and they're publishing this, but I have to pay for the printing. So that's what the crowdfunder is going to do. Mm-hmm. And I figure it'll be out, maybe if we're lucky, spring of 2023, and we'll uh-huh. still need it badly, obviously. Mm-hmm. So that's what I'm working on now. And it's driving me crazy because uh, the other anthologies that I did, the other pro, uh, benefit books, were more hand, literally hands-on. Mm-hmm. I mean, in 1988, we still were not using computers um you know so people would just send me photocopies of the work and I was also working with with other people editing not editing them myself this one I'm doing all by myself so mm. thank god I have volunteers who are helping me and it's all you know on the internet it's uh-huh. coming to me on the internet and I'm just not that internet savvy so thank god again I have people who are and so it's driving me crazy, and it's definitely the last one I'm ever going to do. But I'm very proud of it, and I will be very proud of it. And keep an eye out for the crowdfunder because mm-hmm. we'll we'll need money. Yeah. So that raises another question about, like, when you now that things have changed so much in the publishing world, when it comes to art, do you feel as though? the effect of the art is different now that it's mostly digital or, or 
conveyed to its consumer in a digital format? Do you think there's something different about the way it used to be when we used to have like hold those sort of inky, grimy newspaper? I like those inky, grimy pages. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't, you know, digital is, is here and people love it and use it. And so, you know, I can't say, gee, I wish it didn't exist, but mm-hmm. I still love those inky grimy pages there's something about you know and that's how i that's how i get my comics is is as physical comics uh-huh. um, yeah I, I think digital sometimes takes away too much of the creativity process i mean you learn so much by doing it by hand and mistakes and stuff and computers is so easy just to erase it just by a click this is a pro-choice book that i put out in 1990 Seeing it's a physical comic. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. This for this one, the funds went, the profits went to now the National Organization for Women. And that was when the Supreme Court passed the Webster decision, mm-hmm. uh, which put put abortion in the hands of the states. Before that, it was simply the law of the land. Mm-hmm. They put abortion in the hands of the states. And this is what happened. This is the result. You see that there are now states where it's completely illegal. So this was the first pro-choice anthology I did. And I did that with Liz Schiller, who was the treasurer of Oakland Now. So we had an in. The cover is by Lee Mars. And she, she, of course, is one of the pioneers. She was one of the founding mothers of women's comments. And she's contributing to the one I'm working on now, which is called More Choices. More Choices. Yes. Oh, nice. Yeah. So keep an eye out for the crowdfunding. Yeah, exactly. All right. Well, I know that I uh, we've gone through our questions and I've been keeping you here. It's such a pleasure to talk to you, though. But before I let you go, is there anything you'd like to share with the audience? Anything you want to refer them to? Well, I've told you about what I'm working on now. And I do have, you know, you mentioned Last Girl Standing uh-huh. and I have two other con- comparatively new books. Okay. I just love looking at all your stuff. <laughs> oh, I have it there because I I needed to order more copies mm-hmm. at, at my writer's discount. They just <laughs> arrived. The and audience, gonna, the audience can't see this, but the view that I have of your room is like this, like a treasure chest of just interesting stuff. I call it too much stuff. <laughs> it looks great to me. I love it. This is the Flapper oh, Queens, neat. and it won an, an Eisner, oh, which gosh. is the Oscar of the comics world. It won an Eisner last year. And it's a gorgeous book. It's yeah, about it looks beautiful. The flapper cartoons, those first wave feminists oh. who thought they had it all because because skirts re- reached the knees and they could <laughs> vote and they could drink and smoke, and they were so so exhilarated. They were so their work is so happy because mm-hmm. they really think they're equals, and the poor things didn't know. And this <laughs> this oh, is Gladys beautiful. Parker. A Life in Comics, A Passion for Fashion. Oh. And Gladys Parker was a cartoonist with a very successful comic strip called Mopsy. And she also um, was a fashion designer. She oh, had wow. her own line, the Gladys Parker clothes, 
in the 30s. Oh, that this looks beautiful. Nice colors. Wow. Yeah. Covered. I just wanted to cover here. She made clothes for movie stars. She lived in LA and made clothes for movie stars. And also, the high end department stores all had her clothes. Well, here's some covers. These are from, from the 50s. She did comics from the 19, from oh, 1930s. Mopsy. Oh, mm-hmm. You should check it out. And she also happened to look exactly like her character. Oh. I mean, exactly. <laughs> she, was, she was so cute. She was so cute that you just can't bear. How could someone be that cute, you know, and be real? And Gladys Parker is the one person that I'd like to have lunch with. Ah. Now, you talk about the flappers in, in that era a little bit. And in the comics, I seem to recall, and I may be wrong, was Blondie a flapper back in the day? She was. She yeah. was. Her, her original name was Blondie Boop-a-Doop. <laughs> Those great early name. ones are really a, 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 a great read. They're really fun to, yes. to read. They changed so much over the years. Yes. Also, one more book you have that you didn't mention was your anthology of the women comics that just came oh, out. Oh, yeah. Well, I didn't can't pick that up because it weighs a hundred pounds. Yeah, no, no, it's okay. <laughs> that actually, I think it came out in um, in 2017. Okay. But that's new enough. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's a it's a double it's a boxed set of complete. It looks exactly like the comics. I mean, the covers, everything, the ads. Um, of women's comics and it ain't me, babe. The first one is it ain't me, babe. Um, oh, and it's great because then you can you can read them and see what, what they were like, and and uh, and little pieces of paper won't come off on your hands, <laughs> little brown pieces, and be scattered all over the floor. Because of course, that's a problem with comics is as they get older, they disintegrate. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. It was such a pleasure to meet you too, Trina. You too. You too. I hope to see you at future conventions. Oh, there's a convention in San Francisco uh-huh. this coming weekend. Okay. Uh-huh. A Friday, Saturday, and Sunday in San Francisco. And I'll be there with a table and with my books. And I'll even have that box set, that 100-pound box set <laughs> oh. of women's comics. So if for anyone who's listening, if you're in the Bay Area, come on by and say hi to me. All right. Well, thanks again, Trina. Thank you. My pleasure. Thanks, everybody, for listening. We really appreciate it. Don't forget to check out the show notes for additional information about this episode. And give us a like or a thumbs up on Podomatic or wherever you listen to your podcasts. We'd also love to have your support on Patreon. And get in touch. We'd love to hear from you through the internet or Twitter or whatever means works for you. And finally, thanks to Caffeine Creek for the theme music.